I was haunted by my past and marking time, wasting my life. But now I'm alive and I have a mission, which means there's not a hell of a chance that you or anyone else can stop me. The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen. Engage. Hello, Picard people, and welcome to episode eight of Vintage Picard. A program where we cover Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. Actually, before we proceed with this podcast, right here at the beginning, I want to conduct a snap poll. So I want you to 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 give me your preference here. You can uh, the best way is probably to tweet at us at Hit the Deck Pod. Although you can also visit our Facebook page or uh, just email us at uh, vintagepicard at gmail.com. Anyone receiving this transmission, please respond. And the, the poll is thus. I want to know, how do you want me to intro this show? Should it be as I just did, hello, Picard people, or a, a slightly more cavalier, uh, something that I've been tinkering with? What's up, JL peeps? <laughs> I prefer Picard people. <laughs> And who are you, sir? Identify yourself. I'm a nobody. I'm just a listener who, who's foisting his opinion on everyone. But anyway, my name is James Sajazi and happy to be here. How you doing, buddy? All right. How about yourself, sir? I am all right. I am also Gary McComiskey, the other person who talks on this show. And uh, I, I have a lot to talk about this week. I have to tell you, I have six pages of notes. There is a lot to cover. So, you know, I, I, I will defer to you if there's anything you'd care to mention here at the top. But otherwise, I say we jump right into it. Actually, there is one thing. Thank you for bringing that up. Do tell. Yeah. Speaking of our great listeners out there, a big thank you to Miss Sarah D. Kenny for catching a minor mistake on our part. Uh, we got our math mixed up. So she corrected us when we sent out a tweet saying that, and our Facebook post, that uh, it was Vintage Picard episode... We seven. said it was episode seven. No, yeah. no, it's Vintage Picard episode seven. We said right. we were covering Star Trek Picard episode seven, which was... Incorrect. Right. We were covering last week episode six. And yeah. Sarah caught that, so... Thank you very much. And if you catch something, hopefully not the coronavirus, but if you catch something that we've done, some error that we perhaps have made, we would like very much for you to let us know also. And thanks for listening. So we appreciate that, Sarah. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you all for listening. And uh, great. So that's that's a, a good catch there. Thank you for remembering that, James. And uh, how... how <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you more in depth at the end, but just right up here at the top real quick, you know, did you watch the episode? You, you, uh, you psyched about this one. Did you get a good feeling about it? Yes, yes. And yes. Okay. All right. All right. Me too. So I'm going to actually, I am going to jump into it very soon. As I said, lots to cover. 
But I just want to say here at the top, I thought this was the best episode yet, hands down. But, and James, I said this to you when we spoke yesterday, I, I, I feel like there's some kind of strange paradox going on with this show where the better the episode is, the worse the writing gets. And I will cover that in my review, but I just, I don't know what it is with this show. It's like, I, I just, I don't know. It's like they have a problem with consistency in some way. I think all of the, uh, the bouncing around in time space is catching up with them, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But you can judge for yourself, dear listener, because uh, it is about that time that we warp right into our coverage of Star Trek Picard Season 1, Episode 7, Nepente. So it was about three weeks ago. In, in show. That's what we're given the caption. It was about three weeks ago, Daystrom Institute, Okinawa, Japan, and we pick up on that scene where Agnes Gerardi was listening to her, you know, 24th century iPod and was interrupted by Commodore O. And we never really got to see what they talked about until now, because we open this episode with that scene and we get the extended edition. We get the, the album version of mm -hmm. that scene. And we find out that what happened is Commodore O comes up to Dr. Gerardi and she basically tells her all the things that she talked about Picard with. Gerardi is understandably surprised that she's been under surveillance and uh, she, she is kind of taken very much aback. One thing I did find interesting over the course of this information is that Commodore O informed her that she transferred 300 gigabytes of data to her personal access display device, or pad as we know them. It's nice to see that they're still around and presumably gave that information to Picard. Now, that's supposed to sound like a big number because for us, I think 300 gigabytes would be considered a big number. But considering the rate at which data storage expands and the rate at which, I guess, file sizes tend to correspondingly expand, I think by 2399, 300 gigabytes is probably like the equivalent of a floppy diskette. <laughs> like, it's, it, it doesn't sound like that much to me. When, you know, computer disk sizes in the future uh, in these like enterprise computer cores and what have you starship computer cores are measured in gigaquads like <laughs> i don't i it it doesn't it doesn't sound like that much i just i don't know i i think it's 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 ah, i don't know but anyway so the purpose of commodore o's visit is to recruit dr agnes gerardi into the fold into the uh, the you may remember from episode one, I think no. uh, it was it was it was way back in episode one. Right. Where or maybe it was two. Yes. Whatever episode it was that Picard went to Starfleet headquarters and he kind of insisted that, oh, James is either telling me it was episode two or he's flashing me the peace sign. I oh, live long and prosper, James. <laughs> peace and long life. <laughs> So, uh, yes. Yeah, so in episode two, uh, JLP went over and he demanded a ship or no, he requested a ship very firmly. And, uh, the Admiral Clancy, I think it was told him to 
go trek himself. And so <laughs> the, it, you remember that scene, but uh, anyway, so we discovered over the course of that episode that Commodore O was in on the conspiracy with Rizzo to, uh, abduct and ultimately destroy Dodge. So that's what Dr. Gerardi is being brought in on. In fact, she wants her to at great personal sacrifice, go on this mission and help prevent what they fear will be the annihilation of the galaxy. If these synths are permitted to exist once again. So she tells her these things and then she remembers the age old adage show don't tell. And she suddenly mind melds with her, which involves showing her all these crazy trippy images in her mind of, of these, this weird ritual and something that kind of looks like assimilation and these apocalyptic like explosions and, and very, you know, bad juju stuff. And uh, it ends with Dr. Gerardi being so overwhelmed that she immediately vomits. And then she's handed what we are led to understand is a tracking device and told that she has to ingest it and it's important that she chew it. I don't know why they felt the need to mention that particular detail. I guess they have lost the technology for dissolvable caplets in the 24th century, but whatever, I'm not a doctor. Unlike McCoy, <laughs> I am not a doctor. I'm a podcaster. Nice catch. Well, well so, done. So, uh, yeah. So that that's what we're left off with there. We now know definitively that I guess the reason why Dr. Gerardi murdered Maddox is because she was led to believe that he was potentially going to cause the destruction of the entire galaxy via these synths. Now, I will say there was one theory that I read out in the wilds of the internet a few weeks ago and credit to this person because this was long before this episode they suggested that this very thing might have been what happened that commodore o may have mind melded with gerardi and in fact that is why she had such anxiety and such mental stress in that episode with maddox where she ultimately wound up killing him that something in was taking over her head. She was brainwashed to a degree and she was fighting against her own impulses. I credit that person for the foresight to see where this is going, but I am not willing to give Gerardi that out. I think she went into it with her eyes open and she decided all on her own to kill Maddox. That's just my opinion. There's no evidence one way or the other to say, but I think that this was all her based on the information that she received and believed from the mind meld. I'm not going to give her the small mercy of suggesting that she was acting against her own wishes there. A lot of Terminator 2 moments too, also with the, the mind meld when uh, she got to see the, I guess, past or future or whatever timeline with the mass destruction and how many bad things are going to happen. And also kind of T2-ish where she tried to murder the person that created the problem didn't even realize it that it was going to be a problem so i saw that too and then also the final part was the matrix like with taking the blue pill but yes that that turned out to be something that was a tracking device i thought that was kind of interesting too that uh, they emphasized chewing it curious what the science is going to be like in the future there with those tracking devices i guess you can't 
leave the system once you chewed it. Maybe it goes in your bloodstream or something. Uh, whatever. I don't want to overthink that either. But I kind of assumed it was like nanites that were in there mm. that uh, that kind of dissolved in her system, and that was what caused the the tracking to be effective. Okay. I, I don't know. But yeah, you're you're right with the T2 references. I did think it was a little out of place a little later in the episode when Elnor opts to remain on the Borg cube and Rio says, hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> nice catch. Yeah, that was, that was way out of left field. I didn't expect that at all. You're on your A game tonight, sir. I'll take your word for it. And just real quick too also, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm so distracted by Commodore O's ears. Uh, I don't know why they hired that actress to to play that because they kind of stick out and with the Vulcan or the Romulan ears, it's really quite distracting to me. But anyway, that's neither here nor there to steal a phrase from you. Come a come a come a come a Commodore Vulcan, oh, or Romulan, or Romulan. All right. Anyway, six pages, James. We don't have time for this. Sorry. No, it's my fault. This is what happens when you don't rein me in, James. We've talked about this. I started that. I take responsibility. So back on the SS Van Halen, (laughs) we discover uh, that in media res, we discover that they are being held by a tractor beam emanating from the Borg cube or the artifact. And so they cannot escape and ergo cannot meet Picard on Nepente. But uh, they have more immediate problems, given the situation. Rios says this is all Raffi's fault for convincing him to take on Picard as a client in the first place. Oh, he's an old man. How much trouble could he possibly get in? Uh-huh. So um, she's she while while she's taking this uh, tirade, she's also trying to hack into the Borg cube to get them to release the ship. But unfortunately, the like machine code that the Borg operating system is made up of is not something that she's really able to get a firm handle on. So she's coming up empty. We head inside the cube then, and we discover all these high stakes things, James. It's, mm-hmm. it's just action, action, action. We discover Rizzo and a squad of four other Romulans holding a group of ex-Borg at Disruptor Point, and specifically, she is holding a Disruptor to Hugh's head. What would the Romulans want with you? She's interrogating him, trying to find out first, where are you hiding Picard and the synth? And when he says that they're long gone, she of course takes him at his word, because, you know, the Romulans don't believe in duplicity and deception. Obviously. Uh, so she she takes him at his word and says, okay, well, if they're not here, where did they go? And Hugh very indignantly refuses to answer. So she decides to uh, have all of the XBs killed. And she does not kill Hugh and tells him the flimsiest of excuses that the reason she has not killed him is because he is a member of the Federation. He's a Federation citizen and the treaty that they signed forbids that because they're not in any way able to fabricate a reason why she could have had to kill Hugh. You know, again, the Romulans are super trustworthy, so the Federation would have no reason to think that they would have any kind of deception one way or the other. So I'm sure if they just tell them, oh, yeah, he did this thing and now we can kill him. 
uh, I'm, I'm sure that would be okay. But, but otherwise, no, absolutely not. You must trust us. But so as she's kind of taunting you and berating him, we cut to Narek, also on the cube, who is, I guess, we're led to believe a skilled pilot. He's hopping into this little Romulan scout ship, which we will come to learn later is called a snakehead. And so, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a neat looking little thing. It kind of reminds me of the speeders from Empire Strikes Back. What is that object? But gray. But it's, a, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's a kind of a cool looking little ship. But that's not where the action is right now. We go back to Rizzo and she's telling him in frustration that this is all his fault. He has ruined years and years of hard work by dozens of operatives across hundreds of star systems, which I find a little bit much, but whatever. And basically this sting operation to get Soji, he's ruined it. So it's all on him and now she needs to get her back. And then she uh, grabs her cadre of Romulan stormtroopers and just decides to leave Hugh to his own devices. Uh, I guess to sit there and think about what you did, young man, uh, one assumes. As she's leaving, she radios back to Narek. He tells her that he is in position. And so she gives him release to fly off in that little snakehead. He exits the Borg cube. And we see him externally, we see his ship shooting past the SS Van Halen, which, given that we will come to find his sole mission is to follow them, <laughs> seems a little backwards to me. But whatever. I'm not the uh, fancy Jatvash operative. True enough. With uh, years of training in, in one presumes special operations of this sort. So... I guess I have to defer to them. That's correct. Anyway, so once Narek leaves, they release the tractor beam and the SS Van Halen is also off on its way. One thing, James, closed captioning once again brings up something interesting. And uh, I learned something, James, by reading the closed captioning that I don't think we've learned yet just from the show. Tell me what you know about this. That is that Rizzo... Her name, the name that she is using now as a Romulan, is actually Nerissa. I don't know if that's her internal name yes. or external name or... True love's first kiss name. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I don't... Her friendship is magic name. I don't know. I don't know what which which name it is. Spin a wheel, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, take your pick, but... She is called, uh, she is referred to as Nerissa in the closed caption, briefly, once. That's very clever to uh, watch it through the closed captioning, too. So that, that's a great idea. I mean, I just miss words sometimes, sometimes because they're muddled, sometimes because, I don't know, I guess I don't hear that well. But I find it useful just to, what did he say? Oh, yeah, there we go. And instead of backing it up six times, I can just look at the captioning and say, oh, that's what he said. And back on the SSVH, we see them discovering, yay, we're free. You did it, Raffi. You did it. I knew you had it in ya. And she's like, yeah, I didn't do nothing. That wasn't me. This is a trap. And Rios is like, yeah, probably. But they gotta catch me first. <laughs> and he's he's all set to fly off. And then Dr. Agnes Girati opines, eh, what about Elnor? And then... <laughs> 
<laughs> we we cut back to the cube. What about Elnor indeed, James? I have opinions. Indeed you have. Uh, so we see Elnor kind of running down the hall in that cube, and he goes to comfort a mourning Hugh, who is, who is kind of uh, sitting on the floor over his fallen comrades, completely just absolutely crushed. And uh, James, here, here's the thing. So I, here's my problem. I feel like I say that a lot on this show, and I apologize for that. Quite right. So you should. But I, I, I can't help but see things and overanalyze them. Just ask my wife. Here's my issue with this scene, James. Last week, we saw Elnor drop down from the rafters and take out three Romulans in as many seconds. And then, based on the dialogue from earlier in this scene with Rizzo and Hugh, or Narissa and Hugh, I guess we should call her now, we we learn that uh, there were a further four Romulans that I guess he he wound up killing when the door closed and he asked them to choose to live, choose life. And uh, so he clearly has no problem taking on you know, superior numbers with disruptors in closed quarters. So my question is, if he felt so strongly about the injustice of the killing of these ex-Borg, and we know he does based on what he's going to say and the decisions he's going to make immediately following this, if he feels so strongly about that, why did he hold back? Why didn't he just drop down and do his, I'm going to kill everybody, please choose to live routine with the four Romulan mooks and Nerissa. I mean, I know why, yeah. because he had to be motivated by Hugh's uh, torment. And also they're not going to kill off Rizzo at this point in the show yeah. because she has to be a cartoon villain for a few more episodes. Exactly. But he should have and could have and didn't. And that's what I have a problem with. I agree, and I would have preferred, I don't know what the budget was or the time constraints and things like that, but yeah, that, that's one of the things when you're dealing with intelligent people that, that love Star Trek so much is we do pay attention and we get captured in all of that. So if they would have done something where Rizzo or whatever her Romulan name is uh, was some sort of like a, even an android or, or a hologram that could shoot and interrogate, I would have liked that better because then it would have made more sense that uh, Elnor came down, started kicking some butt, but she wasn't really there, so there was nothing to kill. I would have preferred that as opposed to the huge loopholes that you just pointed out and the the uh, writing constraints that they put on themselves. I would have been fine even with a line of dialogue that establishes why he couldn't be there at that moment. Like, I just got back from scouting. What did I miss? Oh, my God. Like, I, you know, that would have been fine. I, I just... I. It's lazy. It's lazy yeah. writing, James. And this is this is what I keep coming back to week after week. It it's just again, they're writing for convenience and not consistency. And it's frustrating to me as a viewer because I really I do enjoy this show and I want to like the writing. I just I don't know. Sometimes it makes me really work for it. You no longer afford to be patient. In this day and age, too, you really can't get away with lazy writing. In the past, you can say, oh, it was just an hour show or a half hour show. And OK, they didn't have a budget. But this is a little bit different now. And we are used to 
following TV shows and consistency, and especially when it comes to science fiction and something like Star Trek, we really pay close attention to it. So exactly, I agree with you. It would be real simple to just say something because real, that's what I was thinking. Like, where, where is Elnor? What happened? But you, you nailed it on the head. That's just uh, kind of frustrating. I don't know if it may have had to do with editing too, but the final product, as it turns out, as it is, poor writing. It is not for you to set the standards by which we should be judged. And uh, so, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think we're going to continue that theme a little bit <laughs> because Elnor gets a call from Rios and Rios is like, hey, buddy, we got to go. Uh, one to beam up. And Elnor is like, nah, you know what? I'm good here. I got some business to take care of. He's decided to, uh, you know, never let this happen again, which you maybe you should have thought of that before you let like nine people get murdered. But whatever. We already covered that. He's like, nah, I'm good here. And uh, so then what Rios does not say, but probably should have, is... Uh, Hey, what about that blade that you bound to Picard's quest? Is is that coming or is that also staying? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I mean, like I'm not a Kuatmalat. I don't understand their oath. You know, I don't I don't really understand what it is to honor it, but did he see himself as absolved when he decided to stay behind and kill those handful of Romulans? Like, okay, my job here is done. Well, here's a good loophole. And if they decide to readdress that, Picard said that he would come back for him. And uh, he did warn him and you know, we have to go. And, 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 and Elnor kind of volunteered to stay. No, so, I, don't, no? I don't think he did say he was coming back for him. He said, if, if you recall, the close captioning said, you know, I'll see you again. But they never actually said that line in the show. But wasn't there something that Elnor said uh, that he appreciated to the effect that Picard would come back or it wasn't the end? Picard said, I'm not going to leave you again. And Elnor right. said something like, you yeah. know, it's immensely gratifying to hear you say that. And then he tells Picard, OK, but you have to leave me now. And he does. Yeah. I, I never got the impression that Picard was actually planning on going back for him. OK, I tried. But- Sorry. No, no, it's fine. And I appreciate that. I'm sure the writers appreciate that, too. Indeed. <laughs> but um, anyway, Rios tells him he's crazy. Everyone here thinks you're crazy. And Gerardi uh, kind of interjects, and brave. You're also brave. And Rios is like, yeah, yeah, brave, too. And he kind of gives Rafi a look, and she's rolling her eyes at that. And he's like, well, just give it to her. And uh, so then... As, as this is happening, we hear a minor swell, an orchestral swell of the Star Trek Picard theme, which I get it's a moment, but honestly, even though we're seven episodes in, I don't know if they've earned that swell of theme to punctuate the dramatic thing just yet, or at least not at this point in the episode. I don't know if it's like the, you know, the hero moment that they think it is, so... Eh, that's really nitpicky, yes. but it just goes along with everything else. But uh, so they leave Elnor there. They warp away. We see Narek warp away right behind him in hot pursuit. And as the ship is flying off into warp, we see kind of a cool shot. I will give them credit. It is a cool shot kind of transitioning from inside to outside the ship as it warps away through the view screen. But Here's another problem that I had with this scene. Oh, boy. 
I I don't think the scale of the ship fits mm. what we've seen inside. Now we haven't talked about this on the podcast, but uh, James is a bit of a a Whovian, a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> I am not, but even I know enough to say that I guess this is like a TARDIS where it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. But, you know, absent any of that technology in the Star Trek universe, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, you know, with the Enterprise and the, or the various iterations of Star Trek ships in the past, we've seen sometimes external shots and the people walking around in it look tiny and they're definitely looked like there was more than enough room for all the decks and all the cabins and all the compartments and areas that they showed us on the show. This looks like it's the, as I've said in the past, it looks like it's the size of a large room and yet they keep showing us, you know, side room after side room. There's apparently multiple levels on this ship. It just doesn't look like it should fit. She's a fine ship. I know I'm going off on a bit of a rant here, but I just, I don't understand why they can't take a little extra time to think this stuff through. It was very hard for me to restrain from referring to the TARDIS in the last edition of Vintage Picard, so I'm glad that you opened up that can of worms, because exactly, I don't want to go off on a big tangent like that, but this is exactly what you were describing. I'm curious if they're going to address that, or if they're just using it as... Uh, they're not. You know yeah. they're not. Certainly not. Okay, uh, <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's a it's a very nice looking model. I like it very much. I just wish it was scaled a little better. That's all. Okay, fair enough. Concur. And so we warp away into theme. Just a couple of things that I noticed. It's really all part of the same larger thing. During the theme, when we get the credits, uh, they mentioned special guest stars, the actor who plays Hugh, and also one Mr. Johnny Frakes. And they did not list as a special guest star Marina Sirtis. What? I don't know why. I, I like backed it up in case I missed it and I, I did not see her name. I don't know if this is like a Screen Actors Guild thing, like she didn't pay her dues or something, or if for whatever reason, you know, for pay scale reasons, she wasn't listed as, I, I don't know. I have no idea why, but I did not see her name in the credits. If I missed it, let me know. I'm happy to admit a mistake. I, I would want to admit a mistake here if I missed it, but I just didn't see it and I don't get it. But uh, so be it. That's nothing that I can do anything about. So on the far side of the credits, we see Admiral Picard and Soji kind of uh, portal in to a planet that we see the caption of Nepente which is the title of the episode, which is convenient. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they portal in and this is once again, one of those, I think, um, bits of convenient writing that they like to engage in. Like last week when Hugh and Picard wound up immediately in the place where Soji crashed through the ceiling. This is another one of those because they portal in and mere seconds later, they find themselves facing down the silhouette of a hunter who's holding a bow and arrow on them. She's holding them at arrow point. And it's supposed to be dramatic tension for a few seconds until we find out that it's actually a teenage girl. And Picard tells her that she should actually point the arrow up at his head because his heart is made of solid duritanium. Which is a nice callback. Very nice. Tapestry was one of the best episodes of TNG. 
hands down. So to have a callback to that episode in this episode, which is one of the best episodes of this series, hands down, IMHO, uh, you know, I, I think that's nice. That's nice. Yes, it certainly is. So uh, anyway, in fact, Picard knows the girl. He, he asks her by name if they are safe. Her name is Kestra which I think is a beautiful touch. I love that. As do I. And the reason I love that is, uh, you know, when, well, spoilers, although it's not really spoilers because we already talked about them appearing in the show and we've all seen the trailer. She is the daughter of one William T. Riker and Deanna Troy. And of course, Kestra was the name of Deanna Troy's sister that died when she was a baby. So to have named her daughter after her, her sister, who she never even really got to know, was a beautiful touch. And that is, that, that's one of those contradictions in this show for me with the writing. They can have these deep, deep cuts, these really meaningful references that they can very delicately and, and very um, organically sprinkle throughout these episodes and they throw it all away with, you know, some lazy exposition or, you know, just an action, you know, something for the sake of an action scene. I just, I don't get it. I don't get how an episode of this show is written by the same person or, or the same group of people sometimes. It's a mystery. <sighs> but anyway, so as they're walking back to what we will come to find is the Riker homestead, Kestra strikes up a conversation with Soji and at one point... Kestra mentions her compass, this compass that she has, which doesn't actually work, but she has it anyway. And uh, she got this compass. She makes a point to mention she got this compass from a Captain Crandall. Who's Captain Crandall? I don't know, but I think it's something that we should make a note of because they want us to remember that name for some reason. It's not the last time that it will come up. Anyway, uh, Picard kind of intimates that Data is Soji's father, which really is kind of a slap in the face to Bruce Maddox, but yes. <laughs> uh, with with all the stuff that I'm complaining about, I'm, I'm just going to let this one go. I don't have the time or the energy. I find that hard to believe. Data is her father, and Kestra's like, oh, she's an android? Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Soji didn't yeah. actually know that. Good call. <laughs> so Soji has a little bit of a freak out. And uh, Picard's like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 right. About that. Um, so don't freak out. It, it's cool. It's totally cool. And Soji's like, no, it is not cool. Everyone and everything I've ever known is a lie. My friends, my father, my sister. And Picard is like, no, 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 no. No, actually, actually, you will be happy to know your sister is actually very much real. Unfortunately, she is also very much dead. Sorry about that. He's, uh, I mean, I know he was always bad with children, but I don't remember him being this bad with adults. <laughs> oh boy. He, he seems to have lost any and all people skills that he had. Agreed. <laughs> Hasn't been that apparent. I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't. Especially with his knowledge that, uh, she could be set off at any time and just go on a killing spree. Right. I, uh, okay, so from that happy news, we, <laughs> we progress to some, something actually happy. A, a legitimate 
beautiful moment because you know we we come we arrive finally at the Riker homestead and we get a nice shot that hits me right in the feels of one Deanna Troy coming out of the house and tending to some flowers and it felt so good to see her again I didn't know I needed that as much as I did until I saw it the honor is ours and uh, so of course Deanna is Kestra's mother and she uh, you know she she sees Picard and she is so happy to see him they hug they they have you know a really sweet moment together and Deanna you can see I was going to mention this later but I might as well bring it up now because you know it's relevant even from the very first scene I don't think Marina Sirtis gets nearly enough credit as an actress because they didn't give her a lot to do from an acting perspective on The Next Generation She had a few really good episodes, but mostly it was just eating chocolate and, (laughs) you know, not being able to read people at convenient times for the script and and, and complaining about her mother. Like, that was mostly her character. So to see the really subtle, deep, powerful acting that she is doing in this episode of the show is, is really a credit to her. And I think it's it's great that we actually get to see that. Oh, yes, it is. So she, you know, just with with no words, just with a look and she kind of grabs Picard's head and you can tell that she's reading him and she instantly knows something is very wrong with him. She's somehow picking up on what we have to assume is that eromotic syndrome that he was not entirely diagnosed with, but probably has and you know it's just it's masterfully done so you know credit for that uh we then kind of go inside the house where kestra yells and we see one william t Riker grating some cheese and just kind of puttering around the kitchen listening to some jazz music and kestra like yells at him that picard is there and he's like what stop shouting and he turns off the music because he didn't quite hear what she said. And then we get, Hello, Will. And we get the, the moment, the moment of reunion between Picard and Riker. And, oh, it's another wonderful, beautiful moment between the two of them. It's really, I know exactly what they're doing, pushing all my nostalgia buttons with this episode. I know that is a huge contributor for why I think this episode is so great. It's it's naked and shameless and I don't care. It's really well done. Thank you. But the the one it's not even a critique. The one observation that I have here is that at least in this first scene, it seems to me like Jonathan Frakes is not so much playing an older Commander Riker. He's playing Jonathan Frakes. You know, he he sees Picard there and it's not like Admiral or even Jean-Luc, it's, oh man, oh, <laughs> he's just this big goofball, which if you've seen any of his convention appearances or, or interviews that he's done, Jonathan Frakes is a big goofball, and I love it. He he's, seems like a really great guy, but in this scene, that's the guy he seems to be playing, not Commander Riker. Captain! But, um, I mean, that's fine. I'm fine with it. But so Picard explains the situation to him and something cool. He calls for what I assume is his in-home computer. He calls shields up perimeter search and Picard's like, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, do a cloaking scan too. Romulans? Okay. Also, yeah, throw in a cloaking scan. I'm feeling generous. <laughs> Give me one of those too. And uh, then Deanna comes in and we discover through some dialogue that, you know, she finds Soji to be a perfectly lovely young woman who appears completely human, emotionally distraught. Thanks, Picard. But mm-hmm. Deanna cannot read her at all, which she finds odd. What I find odd is the fact that when Data got his emotion chip, Deanna could read him. And if this is a more advanced model based on Data, why can't she read Soji? Now, granted, there's nothing in the episode to outright contradict that. You know, Maddox created her. It's entirely possible that the in-universe explanation is that Maddox used a slightly different manufacturing style or, uh, you know, some some kind of... Uh, her positronic net is different enough that it doesn't radiate emotions the way Data's emotion chip did. But I just, it, it seems like an odd thing since it was a thing that she could do back in TNG. What is the purpose of this? And the best, maybe not the best, but the, the nice little touch that we get to leave this scene off is under their dialogue, we get some some beautiful next generation theme orchestration, like a da 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 da, which they like to throw in there every now and then when there's a particularly uh, classic Picard moment. Um, but you know, it felt particularly appropriate in this episode, and they went to that well a number of times, and I loved it every single time. <laughs> so from there, we go outside. And we see, well, I say we see, we don't actually see much, but uh, we, we come across Soji who is taking a shower in the outdoor shower. And um, yeah, a shower. Thank God. Finally. <laughs> it's not Narek though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, as, as far as we know, he still has not showered. No, P.U. But um, <laughs> it's not the Romulan way. Maybe. <laughs> They shower in the blood of their enemies, James. <laughs> oh, even worse. <laughs> no wonder why his hair is so greasy looking. It is the way of the Jatvash. Oh, goodness. This must stop. It has gone too far. Uh, it's, I don't, it's not. I don't know. That's baseless. But um, yeah, we get kind of a very CW-esque kind of uh, somewhat titillating scene where we don't actually see anything, but there's enough that we can kind of get the idea that this young teenager or at best early 20 something as you know, I would assume she's being presented is um, taking a shower and it's a little creepy, but whatever. Um, It doesn't last that long, but as she's showering, Kestra is sitting just next to the shower, kind of uh, quizzing her about her likes and interests. And and she she wants to know if she plays the violin. She doesn't. If she likes (laughs) Sherlock Holmes, I guess. Can you leap tall buildings in a single bound? She doesn't say that, but that's the gist. She's like, actually, I can, funnily enough. And uh, it's kind of a nice scene bonding between the two of them. At some point in over the like they then proceed inside and Soji puts on some clothes and she tells her, oh, by the way, I hear Picard was the greatest Starfleet captain of all time. He was the best. And uh, James, I know as a fan of the original series, you may chafe at that. But uh, since TNG was my favorite series, I'm just going to let that hang there. Knowledge. (laughs) 
<laughs> so there, mini, mini, me. But um, I'm sorry. This is foolish. <laughs> no need to apologize. I mean, we. I think we can all agree that everybody is better than Janeway. Oh, absolutely. All right. All right. <laughs> You're right. I, just this is just a t- another tiny aside, but. I think somebody on this writing staff is a really big Voyager fan because it seems like they drop in a disproportionate number of Easter eggs for Voyager as compared to the other series. That makes sense because a lot of things I don't get at all. And uh, then when we do the podcast, you point them out and I never watched Voyager. So that's why I, I, I agree with that. There's an awful lot of references there than more than any other series. Although they do throw a couple of bones here and there to the original series. Yeah, of course. And obviously next gen, but I agree. There's a lot of the stuff with uh, Voyager. I have no idea what the heck they're talking about. I don't think I've picked up on any Enterprise references as yet, but I've noticed stuff from all the other series so far. Mm. So, you know, maybe I'm sure we'll get there. Although maybe somebody is not a big Scott Bakula fan. Oh, shame on that person. Actually, it's probably they're not a big fan of Brandon and Braga. That's that's probably <laughs> that's probably what it was. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about Kestra and specifically how Kestra knows an awful lot about data. Like, I, I, I have no doubt that, you know, Will Riker and Deanna Troy, they love data. I'm sure they love spinning stories. And he was a very interesting, you know, I, I guess from an outsider standpoint, he was a very interesting person. And I'm sure he would be somebody that uh, someone with a a curious mind would want to know more about. But even still, like Kestra seems to be the president of the data fan club with all the stuff that she knows. And it's just a little weird to me. Like, it's fine. I guess it kind of strains credulity, though it's not outright impossible. Certainly not. It just stuck out to me as, you know, that a 13 year old girl who was born well after data died like would know this much about this one random guy that her parents used to serve with <sighs> but whatever like i said it's fine Good. so from kestra's room we then move to thad's room thad being uh the person who we found out was the older child of the rikers and we we don't really know what happened at this point in the episode but He's gone. He he has passed. We find out that the previous week would have been his 18th birthday. It's clear that it's something that's still deeply, deeply traumatic, even though Deanna says they're over it. And, you know, how could you ever get over the loss of a child? I, I can't imagine. I never want to imagine. But uh, Thad, speaking of Voyager, James, Thad, and I actually, I didn't know this off the top of my head. I had to look it up. That is a reference to a piece of information dropped in a Voyager episode. It was a Q episode where one William T. Riker made a cameo, actually. And uh, we find out that a Thaddeus Riker was an ancestor of William Riker who served in the Civil War. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one presumes that he is named after that person. Although, I mean... For me, it's a bit of a stretch, but I guess they only had so many significant names in their lineage to choose from. So they're like, hey, this was in a script once. Let's use that. How well you know. I would have preferred Tom, but that's okay. No, I don't. I don't think he's on, you know, I I don't know. Uncle, uncle. 
I doubt he's on great terms with his clone. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Is he, I mean, is he even still around? What happened to him? He got turned over to, he was in the Maquis. Did he get turned uh, yeah. over to the Cardassians or did he get killed? I don't remember how that episode ended of DS9. Yeah, he was, um, in, in order for, yeah, I think he was turned over to the Cardassians because Captain So he, um, he got killed, basically. Well, okay. no, well, Captain Sisko saved his life by letting him go to some sort of prison or something. And then it ended that uh, mm-hmm. he promised that he'd see Kira again. So it kind of had a, yeah, in all intents and purposes, they were going to kill him. And it wasn't going to be much of a life or a better alternative than just getting killed immediately. But at least they, in the nice Star Trek optimism, made it seem like that he would do his time and, and come out all hunky-dory afterwards. Okay. All right. Well, that's fine. That's not strictly relevant unless he makes an appearance in this show, which I think is a real long shot. But Hey, you were saying that uh, Will Riker was acting kind of strange. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, I said Jonathan Frakes was acting kind of strange. Excuse me, sorry. Or he was acting like himself. I'm not retreading that ground. Back to Thad's room. <laughs> We find out that Thad is actually a lot like my daughter in that he likes to make up languages or liked to. He's not with us anymore or never was because he's not real. But yeah, he much like J.R.R. Tolkien, he made up entire languages uh, all on his own that he spoke and imparted to his sister. And uh, we will later learn that he made up uh, 11 or 12 if you count the butterfly language. And um, so he really had a skill for it. But he's gone now, and Deanna is, as I said, clearly an emotional wreck over it, even though she's trying to put on a brave face. And she's also very worried about what might happen to Kestra with all of the potential heat that uh, JLP might be bringing down on the Rikers, even though she's with him. She pledges that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough thing. It's, you know, for any parent, it's got to be a tough thing to have to worry about your child, but also feel that loyalty towards an old friend. So I don't know. Uh, and, and again, she Marina Sirtis plays it masterfully. So all the credit in the world to her. Indeed. Back to the SSVH and the Van Halen, the um, 5150 is being <laughs> followed. Well, we knew it was being followed, but they learn that it's being followed. They get a ping like, a, oh, somebody's behind us. Somebody's telling us. And it is, in fact, Narek. And we find out through one of their trademark exposition dumps that he's flying one of those little snakehead scout ships. And they're super fast and super powerful. They've got weapons for days. But uh, Rios likes his chances to shake him. He's like, yeah, he's good, but I'm better. And so what he does is he jumps into warp and then immediately stops and lets Narek pass him like Lone Star in Spaceballs. <laughs> Very perfect, absolutely. <laughs> Thank it's, you. Yeah, it's never explicitly stated, but I think we are left <laughs> to infer that Narek went to Platt. What? <laughs> oh, God bless you. <laughs> and uh, at, at this point... Uh, Dr. Agnes Gerardi decides to throw herself a little tantrum. She doesn't want to go to Nepente. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to. She wants to go back home. Now. Now, now, now. Now, 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 now. <laughs> she 
doesn't want to go get eaten by a gormagander, which is a discovery reference. Oh. Yeah. It's uh it's basically like a giant space whale, kind of. It sort of reminds me of a uh geez, what can I uh kind of like the flying dragon creature from the never-ending story. Oh. It's kind of like the front half or front part of him. It was it was honestly one of the best episodes of Discovery is the episode that featured the Gormagander. So if you're going to pull from something, yeah, definitely pull from that one. That episode also featured the, the driving premise of that episode was an attempt at takeover of the ship by one Harry Mudd. Get out of here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Harry Mudd is a... Um, an occasionally recurring character or was, I don't think he will be going forward because of the way the last season ended, but he was an occasionally recurring character on discovery. So anyway, back to the whiner. She, she wants to know why does she have to find this synth, which, you know, is telling even though Rios and Raffi seem to be completely oblivious to it. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Raffi does seem a little suspicious of her, but then immediately drops that suspicion and uh, says she's going to hook Agnes up with whatever she needs. I'll hook you up with whatever you need, baby. Mm. And, uh, you know, poor, sweet, innocent Agnes is like, is it cake? Will you hook me up with cake? And Rafi's like, um, yeah, of course it's cake. Mm. It's definitely cake. Well, it's true. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's a cute little, it's low hanging fruit, but, but it's a cute moment. So back to the planet of Nepente. And so Will is outside cooking in the, the old smoker out at the old brick oven, firing up some pizza. And, um, you know, that's cool. Who doesn't like pizza? You're right. So um, while he's doing this, he and Jean-Luc Picard are having a conversation. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take long for Picard to kind of tell Will, yeah, I'm not going to involve you in this. It's, it's, it's my cross to bear. Don't worry about it. Basically playing the martyr routine. And I have to say in his old age, Will Riker gets a little salty. He, he gets a little sarcastic. He's like, yeah, it sure would be nice if being ignorant of danger protected you from it. Wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be great. And you know, Picard kind of takes his medicine for what it is, I think. We do find out during this conversation that the soil of this planet has regenerative properties. And it seems like a random thing to stick in there. I wonder if they're setting up for something later with that. Like, if that's a seed that is going to wind up paying off later in the series. I'd love to see them again. I don't know. You know, hopefully it'd be great if this wasn't their only episode. So I, I would love a return to Nepente. But that seemed like a really interesting thing to just drop into the conversation, given the stakes at this point. Indeed. Great point. To me, it, it set off a ping in my head that uh, search for Spock. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought along similar lines, so sure. Soji and Kester come out, and they are speaking one of Thad's made-up languages, and we find out that, in fact, Soji memorized it because... She was able to read Thad's 300-page dictionary in about two minutes, which catches Will's attention. <laughs> and then it is further piqued by a cute moment. I will give it the stamp of cute moment that I appreciated on its face, but I will also say it's really convenient given that we've never seen this happen before. But I'm not going into that again. 
so she is asked if she likes pizza and she's like, yeah, I like pizza. And then she very ostentatiously tilts her head a la data, uh, which again, she's never done before that I've seen. And you know, it's, it's just something, it's a clue. It's, it's just put there to be a clue that Will Riker can see and, you know, figure out what she actually is. Ridiculous. So uh, figure it out. He does. They all, they kind of run off and to do their own thing. And Riker lays out the fact that, okay, Jean-Luc, you don't want to talk about this. Let me do some talking. Let me talk at you and tell you what I think is going on. Let me know if I'm close here. And he basically, he's, he's figured out the whole thing. He lays out the whole plot and uh, exactly what's going on. And he's like, yeah, I, I get why you didn't want to talk about it. But I mean, you are pretty arrogant here. You are no longer the arbiter of everybody else's uh, decisions. Like you're not the captain of the enterprise anymore and you can't just decide what's good for us. So, I mean, honestly, I have to tell you, James, during this exchange, I was really reminded of the Riker who stood up to Captain Jellico in chain of command when he was trying to come onto the enterprise and make shift changes and culture changes and put Deanna in a uniform and Riker really pushed back and, and they butted heads. That was the Riker that I was reminded of watching the scene. In my opinion, he was like 100% Riker throughout this whole scene. So if there was a disconnect, I think he found his groove by now. Although one, one other thing that I will speculate on here I suspect that there was a rewrite in this script at some point because when he is kind of laying out his case for what he thinks is going on, he's talking about it like he figured every single aspect of this out just, you know, that he deduced it through observation. But half of the information that he lays out, Picard outright tells him in their first meeting. So, I yeah, I I think something was rewritten here. Has it been that apparent? It's still um it's fine. It's like this I'm not going to make a big deal about, but I think that's what happened. I I suspect there was a rewrite in the works. We are what we are and we're doing the best we can. But you know, showing what a great character Riker is, he he ends his I don't want to call it a tirade, but he ends his gentle reprimand with some warmth and he tells him, "You know what? You've never raised a teenager. I think you're in over your head and you need to take baby steps here. And I, I think that's really great because he's, I think for once, maybe for once in his life, he's kind of playing the paternal role to Picard. And it's, it's a really nice role reversal and you can tell how deep their friendship goes. So um, we go back, we find out what Soji is up to. She and Kestra are often what I assume is a greenhouse of some sort. They really like greenhouses on this show. I don't know why. Hmm. Often in, in some kind of greenhouse garden with uh, Deanna. And Soji has never had real food before. Every single thing she's eaten in her life heretofore has been replicated. So she bites into a real fresh tomato and she has the kind of reaction that I have when I bite into a garden tomato. I love tomatoes. Oh, my one of my favorite foods in the whole world. And she she's like, yeah, this is incredible. Real is always better. And um, then Deanna kind of segues into what happened to Thad. We finally find out what happened to Thad. 
and we find out that he died of something called mandaxic neurosclerosis, which is a very rare disease. So what it is, is I believe it's a plot convenience. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I misread that. Uh, what I meant to say, it's a silicone-based virus, <laughs> and the cure requires an active positronic matrix, which no longer exists because Data had a positronic matrix, and one presumes that all the synths that they built after the fact had some rudimentary version of that. But since the ban, there were no more, so the cure was not able to be affected, and Thad died. So you see, Soji, real isn't always better. Direct quote. I don't know if all this has made any sense. It's a little ham-fisted, uh, but that's not what I want to focus on so much. What I am interested in knowing is the fact that they lost a child to something that could have been cured by a positronic whatever. And lo and behold, Soji, an example, a, a shining, pristine example of a positronic whatever, walks right into their home. I have to wonder if that same situation is going to present itself down the line. You know, if God forbid Kestra is also afflicted with the same disease or if, uh, you know, something or someone else is, or I wonder, no, they wouldn't that that's hack. They wouldn't do that even for them. Sorry. What, what just occurred to me is that perhaps in some way they might eventually have Soji be the cure for Picard's disease that he's got, his his strange and mysterious disease that we don't know anything about. That I can't answer. I don't see them going that way. I hope they don't go that way, but I guess they could. You said yourself that this is only a possibility. But um, that that is for later. For now, Soji, I guess, in a moment of not weakness, but. In, in, a, in a moment where she feels vulnerable, maybe, she tells Deanna about what Narek did to her and, and how, you know, he crushed her and used her and tried to kill her. And, uh, you know, she, she gave him what he wanted and she got tossed away like garbage. And then she kind of segues into, you know, I, I bet you think that being nice and gentle to me right now is going to get me to open up to you. And it's not. It makes me trust you less because I don't know if anything's real and I'm not going to talk to you. I don't trust you. I don't trust Picard. I don't trust anybody. I'm going to go. And um, when she's saying this, Picard has a reaction that honestly, if if my daughter was giving me a similar line to this, I would probably have almost exactly the same reaction where Soji is saying, no, I don't know if all of this is real. I don't trust anybody. This is this could all just be a game with my head. And Picard comes up behind her. And he's like, what, you know, like uh, uh, torture you, destroy you. Yep, that you're right. That's exactly what's going on. You hit the nail on the head. Congratulations. You got us. <laughs> and, you know, as he's saying this, Deanna is in the background kind of facially acting like, what are you doing? This is not the right reaction to, you know, but Soji storms off and gives him a good hard shove as she uh, passes because he kind of blocked her way, but she storms off and then Deanna tells Picard, you know, a ship's counselor shouldn't say this, but you had that coming. 
and you know Riker tries to kind of rein her in and say easy Imzadi which is another nice little touch but she explains that Picard needs to understand where Soji is coming from because you know for him yes the idea that this is all part of a big game and a plot is preposterous exactly but given what Soji has just been through for her there's no reason to think that it isn't more of the same now I'm kind of with Picard on this one frankly (laughs) because I'm the kind of person who would get my back up that somebody, you know, if I went through all that trouble to help somebody and they, you know, just shoved it in my face and dismissed it, I would definitely have the same kind of reaction. But I guess as a mature adult, I'm supposed to side with Deanna on this one. I appreciate the honesty. Yeah, well, I am what I am. I'm I'm not going to try and uh, make any pretense to the contrary. So Picard kind of understands. He He tries to grasp what she's telling him. And he opines to Riker baby steps. And he's like, yep, baby steps. Exactly right. And they all kind of agree. We'll do this together, but not right this moment, because right at this moment, we're going back to the Romulan artifact and back to the pairing of Hugh and Elnor, who are kind of skulking through the corridors of the ship, making their way back to the queen cell. And Hugh has had it up to here. He's had all he can stand and he can't stand no more. He is, in fact, going to the queen cell to launch a Q. I was going to say a Q. Q. He's not going to launch a Q. He's not going to uh, start a line of Borg that will be out the door. Um, No, he's uh, (laughs) Hugh is going to launch a coup against the Romulans. And he tells Elnor that very loudly and in no uncertain terms, which turns out to be a bit of a mistake because... Rizzo has been monitoring him the whole time. How convenient. And she's like, I gotcha. That is all the excuse I need. That is a treaty violation. Now that the red tape has been satisfied, I can murderize you. Yes, of course. (laughs) Elnor has a different opinion. He would prefer it if Rizzo would choose to live. Excellent. And uh, so the fight begins. And so Elnor starts mixing it up with the, the squad of Romulan mooks. And uh, in the meantime, Rizzo, or Nerissa, what should I call her? It's your decision. Evil Romulan bitch. <laughs> Language. Sorry. Stick with Rizzo. Nerizzo goes uh, after Hugh, <laughs> and, and he's kind of cowering in a corner. Hugh is not very brave, I have to say. And I'm a little surprised at that, frankly. For all he's been through, he decided to go back to the Borg in Iborg, even though he knew exactly what that meant for him. He eventually stood up to Lore and, in fact, led a resistance against him. And now he's cowering in a corner because some woman has a disruptor? Come on. But uh, I guess they needed it for the story. So Hugh is kind of literally cowering on the floor, and Nerissa goes after him. But she can't get him because just as she comes upon him, she is, I guess, blinded by some lens flare behind her. I mean, just the way the scene was shot, it looked like she was distracted by light from behind her, which wouldn't work. Why not? We were blinded by that light, but she was facing away from it. So it wouldn't have. Anyway, so she kind of senses Elnor coming up behind her and she turns and shoots at him 
but he gets away. He he plays cat and mouse. They do this cat and mouse game where Elnor will will hop around and occasionally kill somebody in his uh you know travels, but he's basically trying to get out of her way and and stay away from her. Eventually, she challenges him to hand-to-hand combat because this is not how the Jat Vash fight the Kuat Malat because that's a thing that happens all the time, I'm sure. Indeed. And um, so she she challenges him to some hand-to-hand and then being a duplicitous, underhanded Romulan, she then pulls a dagger on him and then she holds it up to his throat and then proceeds to whip another dagger at Hugh and nail him in the carotid artery from, like, down the hall, which I put this one on Hugh because he should have stayed good and hid. If he hadn't, none of this would have happened. Point taken. But, yeah, he gets lanced in the throat. He's a goner, and uh, Elnor goes over and pulls the thing out of his throat and whips it back at Rizzo, who beams away an instant before the dagger is able to pierce her. I will say the transport sequence times on this show jump from very slow to very fast, depending on the needs of the scene. It's a little bit annoying, but I mean, I guess that's nothing new that, you know, they've been doing that kind of thing in Star Trek for many years. So I shouldn't jump on that too much. I also think it was irresponsible of Elnor to just pull that dagger out of his throat. If it's the only thing keeping him from bleeding out. But maybe rudimentary Corman training was not part of the Kuat Malat regimen. I, I don't know. I didn't take that course. But anyway, so Rizzo's gone. Elnor is kneeling by Hugh's uh, deathbed, essentially. Hugh tells him that in order to access the Queen's cell, he needs to find a ex-Borg. And uh, my money is on the, the Romulan ex-Borg because... They've been introduced already, so he might go find Ramalama Ding Dong. And, <laughs> you know, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes. And uh, Hugh thanks him for giving him some hope before the end and dies, tragically. So Elnor is left on his own. Someone who is not alone back on the SS Van Halen is Dr. Agnes Girati. And she is seen eating cake in what I assume is some kind of mess hall with Rafi. And uh, this is. From the dirty plates, this is her third slice of cake and at least her second glass of chocolate milk. And she thinks it's a little excessive, but Rafi's like, nah. So uh, Rafi kind of starts some self-deprecating humor about how, you know, she's kind of an emergency good person. She has the, the base components of a good person that can be kind of cobbled together into a quality person in an emergency. And then uh, Gerardi just breaks down. She just goes on this, you know, crying jag and she's not in a good way. But unfortunately, you know, we don't get to explore this very often. Rafi figures out that she's upset about Maddox, but we don't get to delve too deeply into that because Narek's back. He's chasing us again, even though I lost him again. I being Rios, not myself. I'm not in the show. Obviously. But uh, so then Gerardi vomits. <laughs> and initially I thought she was feeling guilty and trying to get out the transponder nanites or whatever. But now I think it's just supposed to be a callback to the behavior immediately after the mind meld when she got recruited. But um, 
So Rafi has a funny line about uh, having a hospitality emergency, but no hospitality hologram appears. You know, more's the pity. Back to someone else who's eating and hopefully can keep it down. We go to the Riker's dinner table and Picard opines that he may need a new ship. He doesn't know if Rios is going to make it. He doesn't know if they got away safely. He might need a new ship. And uh, so then once again, Captain Krendel is mentioned. The mysterious Captain Krendel is brought up as a possible option, except he's apparently some kind of Han Solo figure where he's a broken down guy and his ship is all broken and he's not a viable option, but he might be. We'll see. I don't know. And Soji is reluctant to open up about what's bothering her because, you know, she had her little kind of hissy fit before about how nothing's real and you're all just playing with my head. And then we get the Picard speech. If you don't mind, there's something I would like to say. Everything is made right by a speech from Jean-Luc Picard, except it's not because Soji is still reluctant to open up and you know she she even throws something back at picard like you know how can i how, how can i trust you who are you you know you're nobody to me you're telling me about this data guy what i, I don't know about any of this what what's going and uh riker tries to jump to picard's defense and picard's like no no will i got this time for the double down that was my warm-up speech this is the star trek speech and then he you know he tells her all about how when Dodge found him, he was a shell of a man and he had no purpose. And now that he's been trying to help her, he's got a purpose in life again. And, you know, this is something that he needs to do, whether she wants his help or not. This is something that he has to do. And it worked. And we get some Star Trek Picard theme underneath this. So some some orchestration of that. See, this is a quasi-earned hero moment. I'm I'm willing to allow this one. Thank you. The one earlier in the episode, I don't think it worked. But um, so anyway, Soji tells him, okay, here's the deal. She tells him about the dream, about where she thinks she's from, what they wanted from her where they're probably going and basically where the plot is headed after this episode. But unfortunately they don't know where that planet is, except Kestra texts <laughs> captain foreshadowing. And he, uh, he conveniently tells her, Oh yeah, that planet doesn't have a name. It's got a number though. And it's located in this system over here. Uh, so they know where they're going back to the Van Halen. And Rafi has to be dismissed so that Rios can have a heart-to-heart -heart with Agnes Gerardi. And he tells her that he suspects that the way they're being tracked is that Rafi is being tracked. He is suspicious of her, or is he? I mean, it's like we're led to believe that he actually is, but I feel like we're getting all these mixed signals, like, I don't know if it's the acting or if it's, again, more rewrites where they were going in one direction and then they changed course. But there's a lot of conflicting body language that's kind of given in these scenes. First, Rafi seems deeply suspicious of Gerardi, and then she's wholly on board with trying to comfort her. Then uh, in this scene, at first, it seems like Rios might be trying to play Gerardi by implicating Rafi when it's actually Agnes that he suspects. And then he goes all in on, you know, suspecting Rafi. 
to the point where when Agnes even tells him it's not her, it's me, he's like, oh, yeah, right. It's you. OK, that's funny. And and I don't get it. It may have been like a time issue because, as I mentioned previously, the Rikers weren't initially in the storyboard for this season. So maybe they kind of crammed in this episode and shot it late so they didn't have time for, you know, an adequate number of rewrites. But a lot of this seems sloppily done to me. And again, I guess it's a credit to the episode that it's so good in spite of all this stuff. But I just wish they had been a little cleaner with the the direction on this. But unfortunately, that conversation can't go any further because, gall dang it, Narek is back again. And so Rios has to rush off to try and shake him again. And in the meantime, Dr. Agnes Gerardi decides to replicate herself some uh, old-fashioned neurotoxin and eventually convinces herself to take it, winding up on the floor having a seizure and foaming at the mouth. And then the EMH kind of casually pops in and he's like, hey, what's the nature of the medical? Oh, that's not good. <laughs> not good is a galactic understatement. And then we kind of jump to the cockpit of the scout ship where Narek very frustratedly loses the signal. So it's clear that whatever Agnes did with that neurotoxin, it neutralized whatever tracking measures were uh, ingested by her. So... Now they're no longer being tracked, at least not for the moment. And back to the bridge where Rios kind of sort of quasi accuses Raffi of being the reason why they're being tracked. And before she can get her indignation up, they get a call from the EMH who's like, you might want to come down here. I'm a little concerned about the fact that she's in a coma now. <laughs> so they 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 have to tend to that. We get a quick scene on the Borg cube, the artifact, where Elnor is kind of, he he jumps down onto some walkway and he's kind of huddled against a wall. He's alone and scared, I guess, which at first blush, I think doesn't fit with his character because he is this kind of solemn, stoic warrior monk. But he's also a kid, you know, I mean, he's he's... Like, what, like 18, I think they said. And I could see him, you know, when nobody else is around having that kind of emotional breakdown. So I'll give them this one. And as he's kind of huddled there, he sees very conveniently hanging in front of him a, a chip of some sort. It is, in fact, the card is what I called it, which I guess is some kind of beacon that Seven of Nine gave Picard in case you ever need me. You know, just hang on to this. And it's not made clear how it got there. Like, it's unlikely that Picard would have left it in some random spot on the Borg cube. What I am inclined to suspect is that when he had his little uh, kind of PTSD breakdown, when he beamed onto the cube, he stumbled by the ledge. I'm going to suggest that maybe it fell out of his pocket and just kind of snagged on something. And Elnor was able to see it and grab it. Yeah, it'll, it'll by sheer circumstance. It'll be a callback in the next episode. Three weeks ago. Yeah, right. Their writing isn't that elegant, James. <laughs> hey, 
So he finds the little first alert badge. He clicks it and says, I've fallen and I can't get up. And uh, we can see that a signal has been sent off. An SOS has been sent off to the Fenris Rangers. Back on Nepente, Picard and Will Riker are, are having a little walk and talk. Rios, he has finally been able to get in touch with him. They're almost there. And Picard kind of opines that this crew that I have right now are a bit of a handful. They're nothing like you guys were on the Enterprise. They've got some baggage, but I guess I do too. So, you know, that's the pot calling the kettle black. They make their way to kind of like a, a bench or, you know, covered uh, seating area out on a dock on a lake. It's, it's beautiful. And Picard asks Will if he'd ever consider shipping back out. And we find out that Riker is, in fact, still on active duty. But, you know, it would have to be some pretty extraordinary circumstances to convince him to go back out there. He'd have to have a very good reason. It's a it's a really beautiful, tender moment where Riker kind of reveals that he knows about Picard's condition. And he also tells him that, you know, I don't think you ever should have retired. And Picard agrees with him. And we once again get that TNG theme underneath the, the conversation. And it's it's uh, very well done. Kestra is then very creepily drawing Soji while she sleeps, which I mean, I guess she's a, a 13 year old girl, so it's not supposed to be creepy, but it's a little weird. Soji wakes up and they have a little tete-a-tete and they kind of admit that they'll miss each other. And Kestra tries to tell Soji, you know, when I lost my brother, I had my parents. They got me through this. And you don't have any parents, but you could have Picard and he could have you. You could have each other if you want it. And Soji seems on the fence, but it's kind of like, uh, OK, I'll think about it. And we then go to the very last scene where they're outside awaiting beam out and Kestra gives Soji the compass to take with her, I guess, as a reminder of her time there. And as Picard and Soji beam away, the Rikers hug each other and we uh, we hear the next generation theme one last time as the camera pulls out onto a beautiful landscape. And so as the episode ends, we see the uh, the next time on Star Trek Picard and we see what we can expect from the next episode. And what I expect from the next episode, based on what we saw, is uh, it looks like we get to see some expanded scenes from that mind meld. There was that weird cabal of uh, witches or whatever that was going on. It looks like we're going to see some of that. There is a pairing of seven and Elnor on the Borg cube, which is not a pairing I ever considered before, but now I absolutely want to see more of as do I something ominous is happening on said cube. We discover that at some point Agnes will wake up and then Picard at some point will say to her, hell will come again, which is ominous and maybe not as much as we are led to believe because previews always lie, but I guess we'll find out next week. There's only three episodes, James. Yeah. Only three episodes left for them to wrap this whole thing up. And uh, I'm, I'm interested to know where they are going to go, but I am also interested to find out, James, 
What did you think of the episode? Analysis. The last couple of episodes have really delivered, and I totally agree with you, too, that giving us what we want, we're Next Generation fans, so we enjoyed very much seeing the relationships with uh, the Rikers and, and Picard, and that was especially sweet with Kestra, how she and Soji got along so well. It was kind of like cousins meeting for the first time. I, I really like yeah. that aspect. Uh, very sweet and, and interesting. A lot of great action. I'm a big fan of, of watching some action and uh, the chase scenes and stuff I, I enjoyed too. So all in all, it was great. The last couple of episodes I thought were really action-packed for the series. And yes, it's hard to believe that there's only a couple of episodes left. So these two really delivered. I'm curious to see what happened with uh, Narek if he does eventually find the uh, 5150 again. And uh, it, it's really leading up very well to, it seems like, a huge climax for the uh, at least the first season as you said that they've already signed on to the second season and hopefully and beyond too so overall really exciting yes uh, you pointed out all the obvious flaws and trying to uh, bonk bonk us over the head with certain things and symbolism and whatnot but overall uh, I love the action I really love Elnor I, I think he's a great character very excited about seeing him teaming up with the seven of nine so um, really this episode delivered a lot did great perfect gap filler between uh the middle of the season to the end and looking forward to uh episode eight so given that we know and have known since before this season aired that there is going to be a season two do you think we are going to have a mr wharf fire-esque cliffhanger to look forward to at the end of the season oh i don't know about that that's pretty interesting i'm curious if they had uh, like you said because I love that perspective, too, that you bring to it, that uh, the production part of it and explanations as to why plot holes are there and uh, things are shot certain ways. I, I really enjoy that aspect and it puts it in excellent perspective. So I'm curious, as you said, they added the Rikers into the series late into the writing of it, if they had an original ending for the first season, not knowing if it was going to be picked up or if they had the intention of let's just make it great and yeah, we'll have a second season. So I don't know. Uh, that, that's that's what I'm enjoying about it when it's not predictable, when uh, we could come up with speculation and wonder. I think that's a sign of a great series that it keeps it interesting. So I'm along for the ride and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I have, I have just a few thoughts. Additionally, I'm not going to go into any of the writing because I already covered that in depth. I don't need to revisit that. Uh, one thing I did really like from this show, Kestra, I thought she was fantastic both the character and the actress that played her. And she's only 15. And, you know, at the time of filming, she was probably 14. To see the kind of skill level of that young actress at such a young age, it's amazing. She's got charisma. Her delivery is great. Some of it is a little, you know, over the top, but I assume that was kind of by design as a character, not a failing by her. I, I really, I love seeing her and I, I hope we get to see more of her because she really brought an element of fun and lightheartedness to this show that it desperately, desperately needed. The, the whole episode did. I mean, the Deanna parts were pretty serious, but the early Will stuff and definitely the Kestra stuff. Oh, it, it was absolutely the shot in the arm that this series needed. And speaking of Will and Deanna, now I was wondering, so I think they did a lot of setup in this episode for something 
and maybe they're setting up for another appearance by them down the line. They worked really well. So, you know, seeing them again in this context would also work. But I also have to wonder if perhaps they're setting up a spinoff series. Ooh. And the reason I, I wonder about that is, for one, Jonathan Frakes has been talking for years and he's mentioned this many times at conventions. He's for years been pushing a series with him and Troy or Deanna Riker, I guess now uh, the Rikers in space. And, you know, obviously that would be modified now if they've settled down or maybe not because he did kind of hint that he's still on active duty and something extraordinary could get him back out there. I wonder if they're setting up, you know, we know that they've greenlit at least one more series and there are rumors that it's going to be a Pike series, but what if it winds up being a Rikers series? Hmm. There's a lot of breadcrumbs laid in this episode. So that could be something interesting. And the other thing that could wind up either playing into this or a, uh, you know, kind of hypothetical spinoff series or both are all the references to this mysterious Captain Crandall mm. because they mentioned his name way too many times not to pay that off somewhere down the line. So he's going to turn up somewhere and play some role in this story or a story at least. So the question is, where is he going to show up and what is he going to do? If I don't inform you, there is a reason. Well, I don't like keeping you in the dark. You know, I kind of envision him as this kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque hermit that, uh, you know, has stayed out of the limelight and will ultimately be thrust back into the story at a crucial moment. And part of why I think that, not just the mentions of him, there's also Chekhov's compass, which they introduced and which she gave Soji. I'm wondering if, I don't know how this would possibly play, but... Kester mentioned a couple of times that the compass was broken and she gave it to Soji. I have to wonder if there's some special quality, like there's some hidden, something hidden inside the compass or it's made of something or it's got some kind of weird properties to it that is ultimately going to be the secret to this whole thing or, or part of the secret to this whole thing. So that's something I want to watch out for. Quite right. So you should. And that I will watch out for going forward. You know, it, it's, it's just, it's something that I noticed, but I want to know what you notice. I want you, I want you to let us know what you noticed. Let us know what you think of our show of Star Trek card. Let us know what you're thinking. Contact us and, 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 Respond to my snap poll. Contact us. Once again, we are vintagepicard at gmail.com. You can get us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Vintage Picard just about everywhere. And please subscribe to this show if you haven't already done so. It would be really, really cool if you could subscribe to it. It would help you. It would help us. And one other thing that would really help us more than anything, spread the word of this show. If you like it, please let people know. Go on your favorite Star Trek website or message board and let them know about this little podcast that you found out about that overanalyzes everything. Please spread the word about Vintage Picard. We want to grow this thing. We want to make it bigger. We want to have a reason to continue doing this beyond the run of this season. Make it worth everybody's while. It's imperative. Please just spread the word. And I will trust you to do that. And you can trust us to deliver another episode of Vintage Picard right here next week, covering the next episode of Star Trek Picard. But that is for next week. In the interim, 
I want to say to you, please, my friends, choose to live. Bye! Oh, I didn't get a level, but let's just assume it's fine. You can go for the level. No. I found that just assuming everything's going to work out is always the best course of action. Spoken like a true Starfleet member. Uh Uh-huh.